This program is made possible by the members and donors of the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Green News Report, the David Pakman Show, the Tom Hartman Program, the Majority Report, on the media, and activism for Best of the Left. And before we get started, here's just a bit of free investment advice for you in these uncertain times. Water wings. Well, on Monday, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its latest report detailing the impacts of climate change, not just in coming decades, but impacts that are already hitting across all sectors of human society right now, from water to energy to our food supply, from agriculture and the oceans. We see impacts from the equators to the poles and from the coast to the mountains. There's no question that we live in a world that's already altered by climate change. That was the lead author of the new report, Dr. Chris Field. Now, the head of the IPCC, Dr. Rajendra Pachari, warns that unless we swiftly ramp down our greenhouse gas emissions, we risk pushing the climate beyond our ability to adapt as a species. Nobody on this planet is going to be untouched by the impacts of climate change. If the world doesn't do anything about mitigating the emissions of greenhouse gases, then the very social stability of human systems could be at stake. Oh, that's all. Yeah, that's all. However, the IPCC report does offer some hope. While some serious impacts are already baked in and unavoidable, the window of opportunity has not yet closed to cut our emissions. And this is about risk management. We can still take the exit ramp by cutting fossil fuel emissions, and we can avoid the worst impacts. Kudos to Brian Williams and the NBC Nightly News for giving this report, frankly, the coverage that it deserved right at the top of the network newscast contrast that frankly to the rest of cable news and we got almost nothing on this startling new report now i did see good coverage on msnbc but cnn pretty much ignored it almost entirely and fox news nothing nothing well certainly they ridiculed, ri- ridiculed it yeah but here's the kicker exxon mobile is banking that we will fail on the same day as the ipcc's sobering climate impact report exxon mobile released a report to shareholders acknowledging quote the need to adopt policies to address climate change, but concluding that, quote, governments are highly unlikely to adopt policies that cut emissions. And, of course, Exxon will continue to use its oil profits to hire lobbyists who will influence politicians to ensure there's no climate legislation. In other words, Exxon says, yeah, we're going to overheat the planet and you can't stop us. As Stephen Colbert described this phenomenon of ExxonMobil taking its profits from dirty energy and taking this green cash to give to Congress to allow them to emit even more pollution. It's a phenomenon called the greenhouse effects. <laughs> also, the green Senate effects. Yeah, there you go. I want to man who learned such a thing. Cut off his hand. Let's talk a little bit about solar power. Arizona-based First Solar started construction on the world's largest solar plant in Ordos, China. 
And upon completion in 2019, the solar farm is going to be a 2,000 megawatt facility producing clean energy for 3 million homes. This is the world's largest solar pro project to date. The plant's going to cover about 25 square miles. It'll incorporate some of the latest advances in solar technology. And this solar array is going to dwarf all others. First Solar's 550 megawatt project in California and the Army's 500 megawatt solar thermal project in the Mojave Desert do not even come close. And the thing I want to talk about here is that the United States is really falling behind when it comes to alternative energy development. We know about the influence of lobbyists. We know about the plutocratic dollarocracy system that we have in this country. We know about the influence of the petroleum corporations and the lobbies. But what's interesting, Lewis, is that even the United Arab Emirates, which is almost like a holy grail of petroleum, has invested countless dollars i don't even i don't it, it's certainly billions could be even more according to some some uh, uh records in alternative energy the renewable generation capacity of the gulf could reach 100 gigawatts by 2030 with about 60 gigawatts expected in saudi arabia alone so even though we are talking about oil rich petroleum-based economies, we could almost say. In the United States, we still seem to be mostly stuck under the thumb of Shell, Exxon, BP, Texaco, our government, which is run by special interests, and the rest of the world is moving ahead every single month, every single day on alternative energy. Not only is it sad from the point of view of what, what are we doing to the planet, but it's also sad because we have the capacity, we have the intelligence, and we have the resources to be the leaders in alternative energy in this country. There's no practical reason, right, why, why the United States could not be the leader in alternative energy. There are political and corruption reasons why we are not going to be it, by all indications. And Republicans and Democrats alike seem unable or unwilling to drastically change the situation, which is what we need. It's funny, uh, after looking at this, it's looking like when the oil does dry out, um, who will we be looking to? Right, they're have, going to be ready. They're, they're already developing. Yeah, and we'll probably have contracts with them uh, for renewable energy projects in this country, and the money will still be going over there. It, it's just unbelievable. When we hear, supposedly, we want to be energy independent, right? Uh, and we have ways to do it. We have all the resources in the world. We have the intelligence, we have everything we need, but we just don't seem to have the political will or ability to get out from under the back-breaking weight of lobbyists and petroleum corporations. It's truly sickening. You don't impress me at all And everything you try to prove Is so sickening Laughing like a kid In a candy store With regard to energy We here in D.C. In fact, I, I'm late coming into the, uh, to the radio studio today because 
um, the the winds were so insane that our lines on our on our home, this thirty year old boat that we live on, were stretched out to the point where you could hardly step over onto the dock, and it was it was kind of scary. And I had to retie the lines and stuff in this huge wind. It was insane. But it also uh, knocked out the lights, knocked out the electricity to Washington, D.C. last night. That's crazy. I mean, it's time for America to leave the 19th century behind and, you know, keep the lights on. Last night, the U.S. Capitol building and, all, and a whole bunch of other D.C. landmarks went dark at, because of wind gusts that were 55 miles an hour or thereabouts. And they knocked out power for thousands of people around D.C. In fact, it's been happening. I mean, you can echo this all the way back to the Midwest. As of 10, 10 o'clock last night, just here in D.C., in the metro area, you had 5,000 people in the dark. And it was really cold. It was 24, maybe 28 degrees. It was, it was below freezing last night. So now we have you know mass power outages all over our country. They're becoming more and more frequent. Why? Because we've got this ancient electrical infrastructure. I mean, in some cases, we have electrical infrastructure that, at least in its first incarnations, was put into place literally by Thomas Edison. We're using the model that Edison and Westinghouse and Tesla created of giant centralized power stations that then distribute that electricity over you know huge areas, sometimes cities, sometimes states, even sometimes even blocks of states. And this is not a good idea for a whole bunch of reasons. First, it makes us vulnerable to the sort of cyber attack that we perpetrated on Iran when malware that we developed with Israel took down their nuclear centrifuges. You know, somebody could take down our electric grids this way. Second, it's incredibly inefficient. Nearly two-thirds of the fuel burned to generate electricity is lost in the generation and delivery process. In other, in other words, our electric power system operates at 33% efficiency. And we lose 5% of all the electricity generated through what are called line losses, electricity that gets burned up through radiative or resistive losses through long-distance high-tension wires. It radiates out into space, or it heats up the wires. In any, either case, it doesn't make it to your house. Right? It's gone. And third, a centralized system like this centralizes both political power and money, wealth, in the hands of a very few companies and individuals who then use that power and that wealth to lobby for laws that help them keep their monopoly or near-monopoly status. There was a federal analysis that was done a year or so ago that just got declassified recently or leaked. I'm not sure which it was. And what this analysis done by the federal government said was that the U.S. could suffer a coast-to-coast blackout for weeks, maybe even months, if terrorists took down just nine of the 55,000 electric transmission substations on a hot summer day. Nine of them shut down most of the country. The study was conducted by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, and it was released last summer, distributed to the White House, Congress, and a bunch of federal agencies, and it said that if just nine substations were knocked out by a coordinated attack, 
the nation's entire electrical grid could be down for 18 months or more because some of this equipment is, like, huge and very difficult to replace. And this is all because we're still operating with an electrical system that's been in place since the late 19th century when just a few electrical companies provided electricity for most of the United States. It's a model that leads to fragility. It's a model that leads to more blackouts, more brownouts, more nights in the dark, more inefficiency. But why do we still have it? Well, because it concentrates political power and wealth in the hands of a very few. The downside, of course, is that it makes everybody else more vulnerable to power loss and monopoly-driven high prices. We need to go from that model of fragility, this fragile system, to a system that's resilient, that limits blackouts, that, that ends cold nights spent in the dark. So how do we get there? There's a really simple principle in biology. Resilience requires diversity. It requires a wide variety, in the case of energy, of energy providers across America on the local and community levels, and a wide variety of different forms of energy. It requires that every home and building become a power generating station itself. Think about it like this. A forest is an incredibly diverse environment. In a forest, there are hundreds of species of plants and animals. If that forest were to suddenly face some kind of severe weather event, monsoons, a drought, it would definitely take a hit. But because of the diversity of that forest, a diversity that creates resilience, it would make it through. Now compare that forest to a 5,000-acre wheat field. 5,000 acres of wheat is not diverse at all. It's basically just wheat. So if that wheat field faces a flood or a drought, everything gets wiped out. There's not enough diversity, plants and animals, to bring it back to life. Right now, America is that wheat field. We need to be the forest. We need to get more diverse in the forms of energy that we use and in the number of providers that we have. In fact, we all need to become providers ourselves. Some countries like Germany have already figured this out. In Germany, solar panels are all they're on the roofs of every house, in the, not every, but at least a third of the houses in the country and businesses. Germany is the cloudiest country in Europe, but still, one, one day last May, they provided solar power, provided 40% of all the, the electricity consumed in that country. Cities, towns, even homes across Germany rely on a local energy generation instead of a national grid. And the German government has set a goal for solar power and other renewable sources to make up 80% of their total electricity production by 2050. We're as smart as in and innovative as Germany. I mean, hell, we invented most of the technologies involved in solar power systems. And that's just solar power. Wind power, geothermal, all of these things are growing. Bottom line here, we have to break away from our addiction in 19th century big energy and break up the $220 billion electric industry so that a few monopolistic companies no longer control us.
One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. This fossil fuel-funded group calling itself the Non-Governmental International Panel on Climate Change, or NIPCC, released a report this week at the same time the UN did, uh, trying to undermine that report. Among the things these ExxonMobil-funded uh, folks say, carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. There is little or no risk of increasing food insecurity due to global warming. A modest warming of the planet will result in a net reduction of human mortality from temperature-related events, and that rising CO2 is actually good, not bad, for the planet. Oh, so it'll all be great and we have nothing to worry about. Yes, it's all good. Why don't you stop your whining? By the way, this is the same group that also has said for years that secondhand smoking is not bad for you. So that's the kind of science that we're working with there. But how about the kind of science they're working with on Fox News? Yep, that's the question today. We thought, what better way to start the month of April than to celebrate the fools at Fox News, especially the Fox News Brain Trust when it comes to the planet's most pressing existential concern, global warming and climate change. So today, a quick look back at just a few of our favorite Fox moments from the fossil-fueled fools at Fox News. On March 31st, as you heard, the U.N. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its latest report on the coming devastating impacts of climate change, warning that it will get worse and we need to cut our greenhouse gas emissions or push the climate beyond our ability to adapt as a species. But you won't hear that on the number one cable news outlet, Fox News, with their tsunami of disinformation. There's no science to, to global warming. Wait, wait, wait. And the, yeah. When are the rest of you liberals going to come around and say, you know what, yeah. there is no science but or we he, need more time or the uh, IPCC? IPCC made you wrong. There is no science, just thousands and thousands and thousands of pages and studies, not only as released in the latest IPCC report, but that report itself is a survey of thousands of other scientific reports, pretty much all finding the same thing. And really, what's the point of doing more science when Fox News isn't going to accept that science either? Here's how they describe the IPCC report. They just take a survey of their friends and they say, here's what we believe, and now it must be true, and they demonize anyone who goes against it. I think the details are very threatening yeah. to them. That's why they don't want to look into this more and do more science. Right. They, they just take a survey of their friends? Really? That's Fox News' idea of how science works. That's what they tell themselves in any case, and of course that's what they tell their millions of viewers. And of course scientists have warned for decades that climate change will bring more frequent and intense extreme weather events, including snow in winter. But for the fools at Fox News, snow means global warming is a hoax. It's the most severe winter storm in years, which would seem to contradict Al Gore's hysterical global warming theories. 
so I feel bad for uh, Al Gore. 63% of the country is now covered in snow, and it's breaking Al Gore's heart. I wonder where Al Gore is this morning. That global warming is really taking its toll. And they offer terrible science. That's not actually science, but stuff that sounds like science. First of all, CO2 cannot cause global warming. It literally cannot cause global warming. Actual physicists disagree. So thanks, Joe Bastardi. So you're going to go with a physicist instead of the TV weather guy that they put on the Fox News? Oh, yeah. Then there's this classic explaining why solar power is more popular in Germany than in the U.S. Oh, I love this one. A classic. What was Germany doing correct? Are they just a smaller country that made it more They're feasible? a smaller country, and they've got lots of sun, right. right? They've got a lot more sun than we do. Totally, completely, entirely wrong. Just like the rest of Fox News' reportage on climate change, on global warming, and yes, on science. And this is from a major cable news outlet. This is the majorest cable news outlet, to be frank. No wonder so many of their viewers are so disinformed. And by the way, I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that their second major shareholder is actually a Saudi oil prince. They probably don't mention that to their viewers either, eh? This is the heartwarming story of Rex Tillerson, the ExxonMobil CEO, whose pay, I believe, is it $40 million a year, or is that just... Sounds right. Oh, my including, God. Including uh, options and all sorts okay. of other stuff. This is a guy who, um, as recently as 2012 lashed out against people who were trying to regulate, trying to curb the fracking boom in this country. He said this type of dysfunctional regulation is holding back the American economic recovery, growth, and global competitiveness. Natural gas production is an old technology. It's just being applied, integrated with some new technologies. The risks are very manageable. You should have no problem if you are a town or a city or a homeowner or an air breather with fracking in your very own backyard. But alas, Rex Tillerson has seen the light in a very narrow way. It's a very narrow light. It's not like a huge spotlight. <clears throat> It's not even like daylight. It's like a very narrow, targeted, almost like a laser. Rex Tillerson has seen the laser. <laughs> Tillerson has joined a lawsuit that cites fracking consequences in order to block the construction of a 160-foot water tower that would provide water, which is essential to fracking, 
You clean water goes in, completely toxic water comes out. Who knows where it's shipped or where it goes, whatever. We don't even know what's in it because of um because of uh Halliburton loophole. That was a Cheney. Yes, the Halliburton loophole. And, uh, you know, when you frack, it burns clean. Just to get there, you got to release a lot of methane into the atmosphere, which um, is a far more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. And Rex Tillerson has seen the laser, ladies and gentlemen. He has joined this suit to stop this water tower. That just happens to be built next to his and his wife's Texas, well, I would call this a state. He's got like, what, 80 acres, 100 acres there? It's a $5 million home. And uh, I think it's on the outskirts of uh, Dallas. And Tillerson is concerned because this water tower could diminish the value of his home. That the fracking process will diminish the property value of his home. So he has joined a lawsuit. I think Dick Garmy is also in this. And they are out there. There is no reports at this point whether or not he's going to chain himself to that water tower. <laughs> but um, his uh, the lawsuit says... That this water tower will sell water to oil and gas explorers for fracking shale formations leading to traffic with heavy trucks, creating a noise nuisance and traffic hazards. Suddenly, uh, Rex Tillerson has morphed into Josh Fox, who I saw the other night on uh, Chris Hayes' program talking about this quite eloquently. Um, no word whether, like I say, Rex Tillerson plans to chain himself to this water tower or fund Gasland 3. Maybe he's holding screenings. Gasland 3, Tillerson edition. Listen. It's just about his house. I got to imagine Rex Tillerson has a screening room in his, uh, his uh, mansion down there. And so uh, maybe he could screen a free version of Gasland 2 to try and get the community. Um, but the irony, of course, here is that his company has spent, and other companies like his have spent, hundreds of millions of dollars. In some cases, trying to deny municipalities from even passing zoning ordinances that wouldn't allow for something like this. Sadly for him, they've been successful in large extent. And so now he has to take to the courts with probably one of those trial lawyers. Mm. Tough day in the Tillerson household, I would imagine. Well, you'll put a price on every piece of the most beautiful place in the world. And we'll watch our future float down the river standing on the red carpet You'll take as much as we will give you, and then you'll take some more. With your one eye on these mountains and your one foot 
This is very interesting. Chris Miller, who's a viewer of the show, sent me this. To set the stage, Greenpeace co-founder Patrick Moore is now a paid spokesperson for the nuclear industry, and he went on Hannity and denied that humans have had any effect on climate change. This is the video from Hannity a few days ago. Well, I actually left Greenpeace a long time ago. I was one of the original founders. I was with them for 15 years in the top committee. But by around the mid-80s, they turned sharply to the political left and began to adopt positions that I could not accept from my scientific background. I have a PhD in ecology, and I am uh, very well versed in all the biology subjects, as well as climate change. And I just had to come out and express what I have been studying for the last 25 years, that there is actually no scientific proof. It's not really about evidence so much. It's more about an actual scientific proof that humans are the main cause of the slight warming that has happened in this world over the last hundred years or so. In fact, the world started warming back after the Little Ice Age about 250 years ago. And So Chris Miller decided to tweet a link to a study saying something completely different, that actually there is a consensus from over 1,300 studies that humans are having an effect on climate in the in, uh, uh, on the planet. And he actually got into a back and forth on Twitter with Patrick Moore. This is brilliant. He sent us a screenshot of it. And the response from Patrick Moore is, first, that 97% consensus is fabricated. Okay, that's not true. It's, it's not fabricated. Uh, you might think that there was collusion of some kind. There's no evidence of that. But to say that the consensus has been fabricated is completely without evidence. But then he says, second, consensus means nothing in science. Galileo more or less proved that. Of course, Galileo's theories, including his uh, uh, support of heliocentrism, was completely, it was completely based in observation, right, which is actually part of the scientific method. And people like Moore will say, listen, we can't really say that humans are having an effect because we can't create an experiment that we can replicate and get specific results. That's fine for certain types of scientific analyses, but he's really cherry-picking here. And in fact, I think that if we are to take again the Galileo example, Galileo was fought on heliocentrism in part because religious beliefs said something different. Religious believers said that, wait, no, the Earth is the center of our solar system or of the universe. And some of the opposition to climate change is the same, which is, hey, listen, God wouldn't give us a world that we are so easily able to damage just through industrialization. So in fact, I think Patrick Moore is not only slightly wrong, he's almost proving the point of those who, who are, would have been supporters of Galileo. Yeah, I mean, when he's talking about Galileo, he's, talk he's not talking about a scientific consensus. He's just talking about uh, the consensus of the people as a whole, not necessarily those who are looking up to the stars. Exactly, and this is the same as using the colloquial definition of a theory and the scientific definition of a theory. He's talking popular consensus versus scientific. Yeah, that's exactly it. So it's completely different. Uh, there are many people who share his beliefs, but you know what? I'm going to stick with the scientific community on this one. Science is real.
the 25th anniversary of the beginning of the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska, which has never really ended for the people who live there. March 24th, 1989, the Exxon Valdez supertanker ran aground in Alaska's once pristine Prince William Sound, spilling 11 million gallons of oil that eventually stretched for 11,000 square miles, killing countless animals and birds, decimating the region's fishing industry, as former fisherman Tom Anderson tells NPR. It didn't take us long. You could smell it before you ever saw it. There was no fish, no birds chasing fish. You could sit there and it would just be dead quiet. So everybody called it the dead zone. Exxon then used the court system to cut a $5 billion judgment for damages down to just a tenth of that, a mere $500 million, thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court. Of course, the Exxon Valdez spill never really ended for the Sound's people and its animals. Exxon's oil remains just below the surface of beaches, and the herring fishery collapsed completely, never to return. How did the oil industry celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Exxon Valdez spill? Well, funny you should ask. Almost 25 years to the day of the Exxon Valdez oil spill comes the nation's newest oil spill, now on the Texas Gulf Coast, where an oil barge collision spilled nearly 170,000 gallons of heavy crude oil into the Houston shipping channel, and the cause of the accident remains under investigation. The Coast Guard and the National Transportation Safety Board, among others, are conducting an accident investigation to determine how this happened and and how we can uh, what we can learn from it to prevent this sort of thing in the future nothing we will learn nothing from it we never learn anything from it we do the same thing time and time and time again year after year after year decade after decade when does it stop desi doyan i have no idea i do know that it's already having an economic impact the spill has temporarily shut down one of the nation's busiest shipping channels the houston shipping channel it's closed galveston beaches and ferries during the all important spring break season and is now threatening several important bird and wildlife refuges and fishing grounds. And it's going to hurt a lot. I mean, these, gonna, these people are going to suffer until they get this fixed. And then after it's fixed, what's it going to be like? But wait, there's more. Several major refineries have also been forced to cut back production until that channel reopens, and that will likely raise retail gas prices across the country. But, of course, for the folks at Fox News, the nation's newest oil spill in Galveston is really just a distraction. Uh, yesterday's spill closing the shipping channel to the Gulf of Mexico. Anytime we hear these kind of things, it feels like, uh, you know, another, uh, another impediment to growing out yeah. our fossil fuel industry. Yes, yes, major disasters are an impediment to your fossil fuel industry. You're a disaster, and it makes all the laughter look sad. So pull up your socks or crash into the rocks you're heading for. What are you after, if not disaster? Monday marked the 25th anniversary of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. It was an environmental and economic disaster for southwest Alaska. The ruptured tanker oozed 11 million gallons of crude into Prince William Sound. In 1989, 11 million gallons of oil leaked out of the Exxon Valdez. At the time, it was the worst oil spill in the country's history. Gushing more than 10 million gallons of thick, toxic crude oil. Those clips were from recent news stories. For 25 
five years, news outlets have cited that 11 million gallon number, despite efforts, including ours, to correct it. In 2010, we spoke with Ricky Ott, a marine toxicologist, author, and former commercial fisher. She argued that the 11 million was Exxon's very early, very underestimated figure. Ott, who was in Alaska during the Exxon Valdez spill, said it was a dubious number from the start. Right off the bat, day one, uh, when I was in Cordova flying over to Valdez, we heard that there was a low-end estimate of 10.4 million gallons and a high-end estimate of 38 million gallons. And the next day, it was nudged up to 10.8 million gallons, and the media just captured that number. Already, 10.8 million gallons was horrific. It was the biggest oil spill in our nation's history. It was big enough for the media. Are you saying that the media simply ignored the high-end estimate or Exxon stopped repeating it? Exxon never said it in a press conference. Just when the media started to ask questions, where did that 10.8 million gallons come from? Has it been independently verified? Frank Iorossi, the owner of Exxon Shipping, at a press conference said, alcohol may be involved. And I kid you not, I witnessed the entire international media just switch tracks. And that was how we got 10.8 million gallons rounded up to 11. A couple years later, when I saw the movie Wag the Dog, I saw that scene where the president was just about to get nailed. And a plant in the audience says, well, what about the bombs in Albania? And the whole media switched to bombs in Albania. And I rose up out of my seat and I said, that is how we got 11 million gallons. And my two friends each grabbed a wrist and pulled me back down into my chair. <laughs> and I just swore that I would never forget 38 million gallons. So you're essentially saying that the media have the attention span of a puppy. In other words, they ask a question and then uh, the uh, Exxon Valdez managers go, look, a squirrel, and then they're off and running and they forgot what they asked. That's pretty much exactly what happened. Did we ever find out how big the spill really was? There was one person who said, all you have to do is measure what's left in the Valdez, and then you can figure out how much spilled. And the Valdez was supposed to hold something like 53 million gallons, right? The state of Alaska went and hired independent surveyors because they were preparing for a lawsuit. This was a secret investigation. The code word for it was ACE. Each of the two independent surveyors tracked the amount of water that offloaded from Exxon Valdez, which amounted to around 19 million gallons. We have to remember that 8 of 11 cargo holds were ripped wide open. There was a 21-foot tide going in and out twice a day, and it just acted like a washing machine. So if you add 19 million gallons of water in with the 11 million gallons of oil that we know spilled, you actually end up with closer to 30 million gallons. And that's what the two surveyors estimated spilled, between 30 to 35 million gallons. So why is the 11 million number still quoted everywhere? Why isn't it now regarded as disputed? When the data popped out, the secret investigation popped out in public, four years later, it was no longer news. And it's extremely unfortunate because we did write legislation at the federal level and at the state of Alaska 
to protect us from an Exxon Valdez-sized oil spill, which means that we are underprotected by three times. Do you think the media have been smarter when it comes to the Gulf oil leak? Have we seen some progress then? No, I'm sorry to say, because all the numbers are repeated that are given by BP. There's no demand by the media to say, where's the independent monitoring? Our government didn't even ask for it. What I thought was hilarious was when BP actually started uh, claiming that it was recovering oil, and suddenly the recovery numbers were greater than the spill numbers, so the next thing you know, the spill numbers had to jump up. But the media still is not asking BP the question, how much of what you're recovering is water? So what is the lesson here for reporters? The minute we have an oil spill, assume that it's going to be underreported on the how much spilled and overreported on how much was recovered. And the reporter should be framing questions for the American public. Why are we taking the spiller's information without questioning it at all? Why isn't the federal government out there? Why aren't the universities out there? We know how to get accurate information. We should be monitoring everything the spiller does. Are you sure that that information is accessible? Can the government and academia and the experts that you refer to really go down there and uh, get the information that is available to the oil companies? It's not a matter of going down there. BP released to the public that underwater flow that we keep seeing, that video, that was not high definition. That was very low quality. And it turns out BP all along had a high definition video camera down there. They just didn't release it to the public. And if experts had been able to see the real flow in detail, they would have been able to estimate. Yes, because that's what they're doing now. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, protect the Arctic. On March 24th, 1989, a nearly 1,000-foot oil tanker collided with a reef, dumping 30 million gallons of toxic crude oil into Alaska's Prince William Sound. The region never fully recovered, despite the passing of a quarter century. Shell Oil counts on the short memories of those in the contiguous states, pushing for the right to drill in the Arctic every year. Thanks to a ruling out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, Shell has announced it cannot make its yearly push for new leases and fewer regulations. The courts have said that the Department of the 
Interior failed to conduct an adequate environmental impact assessment before allowing the sale of Arctic Ocean areas for oil and gas exploration. This small amount of breathing room has been seized on by the Sierra Club, who is attempting to make the halt in exploration and drilling permanent. You can join with them by signing the petition at sierraclub.org to protect the Arctic from an oil spill disaster. The Obama administration has the power to cancel all current drilling leases and halt all future lease sales. As the Sierra Club petition reminds us, quote, the Arctic's extreme weather, harsh cold, sea ice, winter darkness, and sensitive wildlife makes it the last place we should be drilling for oil. Help the Sierra Club send a loud message to the White House by adding your name and passing on their campaign. Drilling in the Arctic is both risky for business and potentially devastating for the climate and the region's inhabitants. There's no reason that these lightly populated areas, whether it be in West Virginia or the Arctic, should absorb the damage we dump onto them in the name of progress and convenience. Let's take this unique opportunity to make a pause in the destruction permanent. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage the idea of war and conflict around water shortages or the water sh supply is not really a new concept to many movies, to science fiction. I mean, the entire book, Dune, is based around having to store and manage water reserves at the micro level, albeit on another planet, not exactly uh, an Earth-based story. But that may be not that far off with plans to go to Mars within the decade. And now The Guardian has a very interesting report about global water shortages actually posing the threat of both terror and war. California, Middle East, very large areas around the world are drying up. Billions of people do not have access to safe drinking water. And U.S. intelligence, which we can trust or not trust, and many people would have good reason not to trust it, but it seems to be corroborated, U.S. and foreign intelligence suggests that the danger around the shrinking of, uh, of, of drinkable water resources could bring us to a point where there could be full-out war and terrorism around the acquisition and protection of water. And data show that California is on the verge of an epic drought. It has backup systems of underground water reserves that are down lower than they've been for a long time. We have Brazil, the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, China are at risk. And it's still not feasible to simply run desalinization processes from uh, in order to turn salt ocean water into drinkable water. It's very expensive and it requires a lot of energy. It might just exacerbate the energy problem that we have. Certainly to me, number one, an indication that we need to stop the fracking. Any process that is using so much water to derive a non-renewable source of energy needs to stop right away, as if we didn't already have countless environmental concerns over it, and water is another environmental concern. But we really may be heading in a direction, Lewis, where once again, we've talked about food. Food is not a supply problem on this planet. We have plenty of food for everybody to not be hungry. We have a distribution and resource allocation issue. 
and with water, we may be quickly heading towards water as a as a, a, a catalyst for war. Yeah, I don't see why not. Just one of the many things we can add to the list that uh, that is a huge problem and that will eventually run out. Uh, it's not uh, not fun to think about. I don't think it will happen in our lifetimes, but you never know. You never know, and I, I don't know for sure that it won't happen during our lifetimes. If you look at the Middle East and you look at places like Israel and surrounding areas that already are in heightened states of, of tension, and you look at the limited water resources that are there, water could become, uh, in a way it already is a political issue there, but it would, could become an even more acute catalyst for political tension. We're, we're obviously going to stay on the story. It's something that affects everybody. You can't say... I'm not going to worry about water. Okay, what what do you think is the best thing of the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to to somebody who listens or watches? Um, let's see. You see, I would have to think about that. <laughs> is this, is this the, that hard of a question? Is it that is. It is a hard question. It's like, what is the meaning of life? You can't just uh, you can't just throw something out there. All right. Well, you know what? None of us know what the, what what's good about this show. What None we know is have... we have a show. We know the show exists. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out the David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you were standing outdoors, looking at the distant and reddening sky 250 million years ago, as the Permian mass extinction was just beginning, unless you were right way up north there in that area that's now known as Siberia, where the huge volcanic eruption that triggered the Permian mass extinction was happening, for the first 10,000 years or so, you would have anywhere else on the planet, other than noticing that the skies are getting redder and that the weather seems to be changing, you would have no idea that a tipping point had just been passed and soon 95% of all life on Earth would be dead. It's almost impossible to identify tipping points except in retrospect. For example, we've almost certainly already passed the tipping point to an ice-free Arctic. And we are just now realizing it, even though that tipping point was probably passed a decade or more ago. This is critically important stuff, because in the history of our planet, there have been five times when more than half of all life on Earth died. They're referred to as mass extinctions. One, one of these, the one that killed the dinosaurs, was initiated by a meteorite striking the Earth. The rest all appear to have been initiated by tectonic and volcanic activity. But in each case... What happened was that massive amounts of carbon-containing greenhouse gases, principally carbon dioxide, were released from beneath the Earth's crust and up into the atmosphere. And this provoked enough global warming to melt billions of tons, actually trillions of tons, of frozen methane on the ocean floors. And that pulse of methane in, in intense greenhouse gas then brought the extinction to its full intensity. While in the past it took continental movement or an asteroid to break up the crust of the Earth enough to release ancient stores of carbon into the atmosphere, we humans 
have been doing this very aggressively for the past 150 years by drilling and mining fossil fuels. Actually, arguably for the past thousand years. I mean, we've been burning coal for a thousand years. We just got really good at it about 150 years ago with the Industrial Revolution. And also, you know, 1865 was when Colonel Drake drilled the first commercial oil well in Titusville, Pennsylvania. So the question, will several centuries of burning fossil fuels release enough carbon into the atmosphere to mimic the effects of past volcanic and asteroid activity and provoke a mass extinction? Geologists who study mass extinctions are becoming concerned. More and more research is coming out about this, about these massive stores of methane in the Arctic and around the continental shelves. And so climate scientists are beginning to take notice, too. The fossil fuel companies are sitting on roughly 2 trillion tons of underground carbon. That in and of itself is enough to warm the Earth by 5 or 6 degrees Celsius and is an amount of carbon consistent with tipping points during past mass extinctions. There are an additional estimated 2 trillion tons of methane stored in the Arctic and probably 2 to 5 times that much around continental shelves all around the Earth. If our burning fossil fuels warms the ocean enough that the methane melts and is quickly released into the atmosphere... The Earth will be in its in its sixth, sixth mass extinction. And make no mistake about it, the plants and animals that are hit heavily by mass extinctions are those the, that are the largest and at the top of the food chain. That means us. So we got to stop the carbon madness and move worldwide to renewable 20, 21st century energy sources. And that's why We've produced this short documentary on this topic and a short ebook titled Last Hours of Humanity. And you can find all that at lasthours.org. Please check it out and share it with as many friends as possible. The future of humanity is at stake. I mean, check, check out this website, lasthours.org, and then share it with 10 friends. This message needs to go viral. We need, we need climate scientists. I, you know, it, it's interesting. When we were putting this video together, I had no problem finding geologists who were willing to talk about mass extinctions because that's what they study. I started telling you about this in the, in, the, in the last hour, that in 1960, they had no idea what caused either the Permian mass extinction or the KT extinction, the, 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 the one that killed the dinosaurs. By the 1990s, they had figured out it was a meteorite that killed the dinosaurs, but they still didn't know what caused the, the Permian mass extinction. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, some really, really good research was done, particularly by a guy named Paul Wignall out of uh, the UK. And he's in the movie. Where they found this layer of rock. He, he, they explored South Africa, Antarctica, Greenland. The Greenland was the real mother load. They found this layer of rock from the Permian mass extinction. And in the middle of this layer of rock, right at the time when everything died, there was this massive signature of carbon-12. And he asked the question, what, what's this carbon-12 doing here? Carbon-12 is, is what is, re it's methane. It's released by, by rotting plants. But there wasn't enough plant material on the planet Earth at that point 250 million years ago to produce that much carbon to show up in the, in the fossil layer. So how did it get there? And he published a paper basically asking that question. 
And then Jerry Dickens, another guy who's in our, our movie, says, well, I know how it got there. That, that was a methane release. That wasn't living plants rotting. That was, that was hundreds of thousands, maybe tens of millions of years worth of plants that had rotted and sunk to the bottom of the sea and frozen as methane crystals. And the earth warmed up enough that that methane got liberated into the atmosphere, and boom! You got this huge carbon-12 signature in the rock. And in 2002, scientists put this together, and the BBC did a documentary on this called The Day the Earth Nearly Died. If you go over to YouTube and just plug in The Day the Earth Nearly Died, it'll pop up as the top one or two or three videos. It's a one hour long BBC documentary. And it lays out the you know how the scientists had figured out now this is two thousand two. How the scientists had figured out that the Permian mass extinction was caused by the by this volcanic eruption in Siberia releasing enough carbon dioxide that it warmed the earth by six degrees Celsius. And that that, in turn, warmed the ocean by six degrees. And that was enough to cause the methane in the ocean to melt, turn into a gas, go into the atmosphere, and warm the entire world by 12 or 20 degrees. And that killed off all the life on Earth. And the amazing thing is that when the BBC made that documentary, which you can still watch, it was a decade ago, when they made that documentary saying, aha, we have figured out what caused the Permian mass extinction. At that point in time, the climate scientists had not yet perfected. I mean, there was still some debate about global warming. The climate scientists had not yet perfected the climate models to the point where they were saying, you know, carbon dioxide is going to go above 400 parts per million in the next decade and a half. They were not suggesting that. And we're going to see, you know, we're, we're going to see at least a degree of warming in the next 15 years. They were not suggesting that. Well, here we are. Hey Jay, it's Chris from Colorado Springs. I just listened to the latest episode on reproductive rights, and I wanted to toss an idea out there that I'm sure isn't new, but I haven't heard it on your show yet. So, so far the focus has been on women's rights, and that seems the natural, and I think that's how it should be. But what I think this does is it puts women and their allies naturally on the defensive, forcing them to explain why they need and have a right to contraceptive coverage. It isn't necessarily difficult to explain the benefits of contraception to someone ignorant of their effects, but it is difficult to fight thousands of years of misogyny and patriarchy, especially when so many of those who oppose contraception claim they do so because their sky god tells them it's bad. When talking to a conor, most conservatives will claim that they are all full equality and that this contraception issue has nothing to do with women's rights, it's merely a religious issue. Why don't we, then, as progressives, go on the attack using their own reasoning? Why should it be okay for men to use ED treatments like Viagra or Cialis? If you can't awaken your own member from a permanent state of flaccidness, isn't that God's will for you? Who are you to disturb the natural order of things by, quote, playing God and taking your reproductive rights into your own hands? What about the sectomies? How dare a man control the flow of sperm into his semen? 
If we force questions like these upon old, white, conservative men, how do you think they'll respond? I'm sure issues of personal autonomy and it's none of your business and how dare you even ask, etc. would no doubt come out of the woodwork. The point of this tactic would be twofold. First, we'd force men to feel personally invaded and shamed into publicly answering questions about their own sex lives, a situation which women find themselves in all too often. And it just might show the relative parity between vasectomies and IUDs. If you think about it, they are not all that different. Yes, I realize that vasectomies are supposed to be permanent and IUDs are not, but vasectomies can be easily reversed with minimal fuss. The other important point, and one I am not sure about, so don't quote me on it, but I wouldn't be surprised if these male-centric methods of controlling reproduction are covered by most insurance companies. Therein lies the blatant inequality and perhaps a way in the back door to shame some of those lawmakers into recognizing their own hypocrisy. Basically, I'm tired of hearing women defend themselves against these jackasses. Let's go on the offense and pin these pricks down about their own medical needs, or as the case very may well be, their own medical deficiencies. Now that was a joke. It was not meant to be body shaming. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Chris from Rhode Island. Second time calling in. As always, love what you do, sir. And just wanted to drop a note on... The back-and-forth discussion on the gentleman who decided to label himself as queer, despite not really representing any characteristics of actually being so. Um, I, too, could be easily perceived as a straight white man, uh, and I do actually identify as queer. Um, as a matter of fact, I self-identify as a quote-unquote lesbian, um, to, much to the uh, chagrin of uh, and the eye rolls of many others. Now, mind you, I didn't accept that label until actually a gay man had put it upon me. Um, he had assumed that I was gay because I am actually indeed myself very queer. Um, you know, I do find myself enjoy wearing a skirt to a club from here and there. And it's taken me almost 20 years to really uh, accept who I am and what I am and how I choose to express myself, which doesn't really fit into many of the boxes or norms that other people would find very comfortable, um, you know, and I have had a beautiful lot of people look at me and say, you're not queer, like, well, who are you to be the gatekeeper, you know, I was raised in the LGBT community by an interracial lesbian couple, you know, I have had to deal with death threats and many unsavory labels and slurs throughout my life, and, and still do, even out of school and about to celebrate my 30th birthday and had somebody drive down the street and call me a faggot, I guess because my pants were too tight. So I probably wear the label of being queer um, because I am. I take queer as being not normal, you know, as somebody who just recently came out as um, gender nonconformist and bisexual, you know, like that is what it is to be queer. You take all the good with all the bad. You don't get to just associate yourself with something because you're not comfortable with being perceived as normal. Unless you've actually lived a life of not being in the cast of being treated like you're normal, then I don't really feel like you get to go around saying that you are something you aren't when you should just be saying that you're an ally and you stand in solidarity with those that are. And I apologize for any of the background noise. I'm on my way to my new job, the way for escaping poverty, and have been wanting to send in this call for quite some time because 
this conversation has not sat well with me uh, since it began. So thanks again for everything that you do, Jay. You have yourself a great day, sir. Thanks for doing everything that you do. Keep it up. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Zach again from San Francisco. I just wanted to call in about your newest episode. I really liked it. I definitely agree that there's a big problem in corporate media. This is why I listen to your show, among others. The one thing I thought was kind of ironic was the little clip you played from uh, The Young Turks where Jenk was talking about PBS taking donations from conservative groups and then catering to conservative interests. And I thought that was a little weird, considering that even on your show, you acknowledge that sometimes you have to make concessions. As an anti-consumerist advocate, blah, 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 Amazon, blah, blah, blah. Like, you have to make concessions or you don't stay in business. And PBS is at a point where they have to shut their doors and sell off all their crap and fire all their employees or they have to start taking coke money. And if you don't want them being funded on dirty coke money, then liberals need to give more money to PBS. Plain and simple. You cannot be mad at them for catering to the people who are keeping them in business. That's how business works. So, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. And thanks again for your show. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I, I'd planned on doing a quick little response to the, the last caller there about PPS and how media gets funded and all those sorts of things. And then I remembered this fun bonus clip that I could play for you that, that does – if not a better job, a, a, maybe a more entertaining job of explaining the situation than I would have anyway. So enjoy this extra clip from This Week in Blackness. Well, that, I'm glad you did. But if we were to hire a fundraiser, and let's say the fundraiser was like, hey, Elon, we want to throw you a Twin Media Gala okay. you know, at the, like, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Sounds amazing. It's going to be hosted by the KKK. I mean, well... How much money are the KKK bringing to the table? I mean, Listen, at the moment, we, we need money. I, 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 I can be talked to. <laughs> you can't be talked to to taking money from the KKK. How much money is the KKK giving me? I was about to say. Uh, we, have to, we also have to hire some sort of PR person to spin it in a positive way. Motherfucker, I ain't hiring shit. I will spin it right here. I'm taking the KKK's money. If the KKK offered you a million dollars, you would take it. You would take it. I would take it in what a heartbeat. What if it was $10,000? Still take it. You still take it, okay? Because <laughs> okay, what if it was? What if it was just okay? The KKK is not just like writing you a check and you don't really. Have, but they're they're hosting like a huge event, okay? Like a Netroots Nation style event for Twin Media, where there would be white supremacists and people just wandering, walking around. A million dollars. Yes. All right. Well, like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm a big. I gave a lot of uh, uh, shit to the, the NAACP when the last time I went down to uh, Leadership 500 because they had, I believe, I forgot, they had someone from Wells Fargo come by. And my, the shit I gave them wasn't because they had someone from Wells Fargo. Because I'm like, get money. Like, the, 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 this stuff doesn't, like, people want a uh, 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 change and they want you to have all this stuff and you for you to be on the ground and at these events and that stuff and handling all this stuff. But they don't understand that all this costs money. Mm-hmm. And as someone who now, who is clearly understanding how much money all this costs, I do not give people a hard time about that. What I do give you a hard time about is if you go and have someone come in there and you don't acknowledge that this person is problematic. If the, if the KKK gave me a million dollars, I'm like, 
Thanks, KKK. I will use this million dollars to dismantle everything you represent. Fair Have enough. a pleasant day. Fair and enough. I would take that money like a boss. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair but enough. I, because I'm not, because I, it, it would be ridiculous for me to say no million dollars. I'm just going to sit here and fight for justice with no money and knowing you everyone. I hope you're not hungry because, <laughs> because you're not getting anything. Else. No, I'm taking that money and I'm going to put all that money towards destroying them. So to put all that in short, whether it's me taking money from Amazon, this week in blackness taking money from the KKK or PBS taking money from conservative billionaires, the real question and what separates me from PBS is not where you get the money but what you do with it. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the show survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained